concerns reproductive justice. We're a community-directed policymaking organization centering Black women, women of color, and queer and trans people of color for a movement that rises from the bottom up. Reproductive justice as a movement and as a framework comes directly from all of those aforementioned communities. So we would be remiss as an organization if our constituency as staff and as board and you know the folks who kind of are holding it down did not reflect those communities and if we weren't centering those communities in our work. Hello and welcome to the Mirror Stage podcast. Before we begin, we'd like to acknowledge that we're on the traditional land of the first people of Seattle, the Duwamish people, past and present, and honor with gratitude the land itself and the Duwamish tribe. Hello, everyone. I am Kiki. My pronouns are they, them. And I'm Ty. My pronouns are he, him. And we at Mirror Stage are a multidisciplinary arts company working in the Pacific Northwest. At Mirror Stage, we use the power of storytelling to challenge assumptions, bias and prejudice, increasing equity and inclusion, while encouraging more thoughtful reflection on today's issues. Uh, So Kiki, what's new with Mirror Stage? What's been going on? Well, we have been in full swing for our Expand Upon series. I'm sure people have already heard me talk about this multiple times over the last few months, but I'm just very excited to continue working on it. We've just done our second round of readings. We're about to hop into our third, maybe by the time this episode airs. No, 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 no. Uh, Not by the time this episode airs. We will have just finished our third about like a week after this episode airs. But what I can say is since we are getting all revved up, we have our first line of programming for our Expand Upon series, which is going to be our activism brunch. So our activism brunch is where we gather as a community for a discussion about the complexities of the topic. So our topic this time, as you know, is healthcare. And so there we're going to learn different ways about how people can get involved, how they can advocate for change. And then they also have a chance to see two scenes from the shows, as well as have a chance to break bread with us. We serve breakfast, we serve drinks, we and have a big community discussion. So it's going to be great. It's going to be at Nalanda West over on Woodland Park Avenue. And Nalanda West, Ty is, oh, Nalanda West, Ty, you, I was just like, Ty, as you know, that's where we had our fundraiser. But I was like, hey, you weren't there, but it'll be good for you to be there and for you to see that space. So it'll be really exciting. Yep. You know what's funny? Uh that's my birthday weekend, and I think I will be in Canada, so I might still not get to see Nalanda Just never West. going to see Nalanda West, which is weird, <laughs> but okay. I love, I have many questions. I love that that you might be in Canada. But for listeners, uh, that that's going to be Saturday, September 9th. <laughs> so time's going to be gone in Canada. Um, but we're going to have more details coming out on our social media. Of course, you can look it all up on our website. But I wanted to talk a little bit about social media because Ty has been dipping his feet in the social media pool over at Mirror Stage. Ty, can you tell us a little bit more about what's going on with our social media? Yes. So we, uh, I mentioned our summer podcast campaign earlier this month or last month. But um, I have been doing graphics and just working with our new social media uh, coordinator, Jackie on just ramping up and elevating our presentation um, for Mirror Stage. Uh, So just developing graphics, uh, picking out colors, making things look pretty. 
And that's really what social media is to me. And I think, um, you know, if you've seen our branding and everything, it's, you know, it's great. It's nice. But I think that it's not in line with the future of Mirror Stage and where we want to take the company. Um, so we are going through a few changes and we'll be keep going through a few um, going through a few changes just to elevate our branding and elevate our presentation. Um, but hopefully that is works in everyone's favor. It's a win, win, win all the way around. And, uh, and yeah, if you guys love it, send us an email and be like, yo, Ty, social media stuff looks sick. I also love the podcast. Um, so keep doing great. You and Kiki are awesome. And, uh, also on our socials, we're doing giveaways. Every episode will have a uh, trivia Thursday associated with it. And this last prize was a $95 spa gift card. And as of now, the end day, nobody has claimed it yet. So if you want to get, uh, get these, you know, nice hundred dollar plus prizes, um, and not just cash value, you know, like anybody could use a, a spa day to get away, mas- nice massage. Um, I know I could. And, you know, if you say you can't, then you're probably lying. Uh, so if that prize sounds nice to you, then go check out our socials. Um, Rush, all you have to do is listen to the episode, which if you're listening now, you're already ahead of the game, guys. And uh, listen to the episode, check out the question and uh, just pay attention to the details and you might win a great prize on behalf of Mirror Stage. And hopefully in the future, we can incorporate some mirror stage swag with these giveaways as well. Um, so if that sounds dope and awesome to you guys and you love the podcast or want to help us fund future productions, you can donate at our website, mirrorstage.org, or text Play It Smart to 206-888-6477. That's 206-888-MIRR. And as always, if you are not able to give financially, we always love it when you guys and ladies and babies and dental thems go ahead and like and subscribe to our social media stuff, like and subscribe to our podcast, all of that all around on all the platforms that you consume our mirror stage media. So today, listeners, uh, we have a special treat for you. We'll be talking with Surge Reproductive Justice, and they mobilize communities to build a world where all people can make powerful, self-determined choices for their bodies and the future of their families and communities. Their work centers Black women, women of color, and queer and trans people of color for a movement that rises from the bottom up. Our guest today is E.N. West. Their pronouns are they, he, and E.N. West is the co-director. So E.N. West affectionately known as E, proudly hails from the D.C. metropolitan area by way of Alexandra, Virginia. E graduated from William & Mary with a dual degree in American Studies and Government. E deeply believes we are uninhibited when we know our power and is committed to co-creating a world where everyone intimately knows how powerful they are and directs the power toward collective liberation. They came to Surge in 2019 as Community Impact Fellow and served as Communications and Community Engagement Manager in their initial role at the organization. 
In 2021, they transitioned to co-director. Their other current community involvement includes supporting faith communities in faithfully and equitable discerning land use as a co-founder and community organizer with the Faith Land Initiative at the Church Council of Greater Seattle. In moments of play and rest, he enjoys staying embodied through boxing, calisthenics, running, hiking, and biking. He also loves watching psychological thrillers and horror movies, reading social justice literature, and being a man about town in whatever zip code he's in. Uh, I just wanted to really quickly point out, like, look at that. They fit, they, they fit right in with us, Ty. So psychological thriller horror movies. I need right. to be a little bit more active, but it all sounds fun. <laughs> yeah, it does for sure. <laughs> And just a note, we recorded this in June. At the time, our guest Ian West was the co-director of Surge and has many fascinating stories to share with us. Since this recording, however, Ian has left Surge. During their time at the organization, they've contributed extensively to forming and cultivating communications, organizational development, uh, operations, Just Speak, Reproductive Justice Storytelling Series, and Resource Mobilizing Program. Though they have moved on, Ian had many beautiful things to say about Surge, and today they still have positive things to say about the organization and their time there. Uh, so without further ado, here's our interview with Ian West of Surge Reproductive Justice. Awesome. Okay, welcome in. Please go ahead and start off by introducing yourself to our listeners by giving us your name and your pronouns. Hi, everyone. My name is Ian West. I go by E. My pronouns are they, them, or he, him. Um, yeah, I'm glad to be here. Nice. Thank you for joining us today, E. Um, so we want to know, what does storytelling mean to you? Storytelling to me is a way of narrating our experiences or the experiences of the people that are around us, people who have influenced us, the land that we're on, whatever it may be, making sense of our human experience and communicating that to others in a way that resonates. Yes, thank you. Well, and as we talk about storytelling, we're curious on what is a story that has had an impact on you? For sure. So back in 2017, uh, I went to visit my extended family, uh, which they live right over the Virginia-North Carolina border in an area uh, called Halifax County. Um, and yeah, it was the first time I'd ever met that extended side of my family. And for many years, I had told myself a story about that side of my family, just based on some of the other events that were not so glamorous about our lives over the, you know, the years and really didn't have a super positive feeling, but I knew I was moving to Seattle and I wanted to meet this whole side of people that I'd never actually seen in real life and, and see where we're from um, because they still live on the land that we believe we were brought to, um, of course, when we were kidnapped from Africa. So um, going down there, it completely, it was a new story that was told to me basically um, because one, I met my relatives. So I met some of these people that I'd only heard about in the abstract and um, not only did I meet them, but I met them on acres of land that, you know, that they owned. And the story, one of the stories I told myself about my family is that we couldn't own anything because we didn't own anything. And I didn't know of anybody who did own anything. And so that was, you know, a very powerful story to tell oneself. And it kind of is deterministic in a way of like, what can you achieve if 
your lineage, you know, you believe this thing about your lineage. So to meet people who were not only telling me, yeah, this is ours, but also this is how we came here. This is what it's looked like for the last several hundred years for us to be here. Here are your other relatives here. Let's go with, you know, come in the car, let's go down the road and let's meet them. You know, we're, the, we're in the super rural part of North Carolina. So it's a lot of trust going on here. Um, and yet I just met dozens and dozens of people that I was related to and I had never met before. And so it, I guess to kind of put it together, it changed my life. Uh, it changed not only the story I was telling myself about my family, but also about myself, what I could do, what my dreams could be. Um, it helped me understand my father better because this is his side of the family. And so I got a more holistic picture of sort of what his life was like. And my grandfather, who died when I was very young, so I never got a chance to meet him. Um, yeah. And since then, it's really guided a lot of my steps um, in ways that I just I would not have made some of the choices I've made if I had not gone down there and met those folks. And they told me something different. So I think that that experience and sort of the stories that came out of it was really powerful for me. That's beautiful. I just want to hop into a quick and say that like, this is also another concept. Every time we ask this question to people, we learn something new about these people, but obviously like how story is having an impact on people. And this idea of the stories that we tell ourselves specifically about family <laughs> and like how that can change when you interact with these people or get a different experience is just such a fascinating concept. So thank you. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Thanks. I like that question. Yeah, most definitely. I completely agree. And uh, being someone who also has family in the South that runs very deep, like like my mother had 12 brothers and sisters and they all have kids and like yeah. some of them, their kids have kids and it's just generations and generations right there. And I grew up around them. So I think for me, um, part of it is almost like the reverse in my head. Like I grew up having all these things like, oh, my my family's like, you know. I've, I've thought they were like more well off than they were. And I thought like people like didn't got along better than they really did, you know? But I think as I got older and I got away from the kitty table, so to speak, and started seeing <laughs> yeah. like what the grown folks were going through and dealing with, I'm like, oh, you know, like a lot of the things that I go through, you know, that I see as like a struggle or something, my family has already gone through and or have been going through for their entire lives, you know? So it is crazy to see both sides of like what we pull from our family and um, what we can, we can learn from our family as well. Um, so thank you for sharing that. E. Um, our, our next question uh, for you is going to be, what is your origin story? Yeah. So I'm originally from Virginia. I'm from Northern Virginia, right outside of the DC area. So um, I was born in Fairfax, Virginia, and then raised in Springfield. And eventually, most of my life, I lived in Alexandria, Virginia. So that's what I claim, 703. Um, I was there for pretty much my entire life, uh, but spent a lot of time between D.C. and Southern Maryland as well. And so it always feels weird to just claim Virginia because so much of my formation was across that sort of tri-state area. Um, my father is from D.C. He's from Southeast D.C. And then my mother is from Wilmington, North Carolina, which is a not that small anymore, but was a small coastal city um, in North Carolina. And so that's where the other side of my family is from, generations of folks from that sort of area. Um, yeah. And so they met in the military. So I did grow up uh, kind of a military kid. My dad retired when I was pretty young, so I didn't have to thank goodness I did not have to move around all the time. But 
Uh, I did still go on base. You know, that's where we would get our groceries. That's where I would go to summer camp. I had a lot of friends who were in the military. There was just a strong military influence in my life. I lived, you know, walking distance to a base. So that was just a, a, just a part of my life uh, and a lot of my friends' lives and definitely influenced, you know, how I was raised. And so, um, you know, my parents are pretty religious, uh, pretty socially conservative, but they don't vote conservative. I will say that, but um, they are a bit socially conservative in the way that folks of their generation kind of can be as they get older. And um, that definitely influenced me. So I feel like sometimes I feel like a, an old person walking around because I was kind of raised by older parents by the time they had me. And I am an only child as well. So, yeah, so that was that. Um, I was there. It's a very diverse area. I'm very proud to be from there. And I'll tell people at any moment, like people sometimes assume I'm from Seattle because I've been here for a while. I'm like, don't get it twisted. I'm always from the East Coast. Uh, but I do have love for Seattle, of course. But um, yeah, so I went to school in Southern Virginia, um, was there for four years and thought that I was just going to move back to the D.C. area and had always just sort of thought that that was my trajectory. I was very much like a D.C. person, very ambitious, almost like cutthroat when I was younger. It took things way too seriously looking back on it. But that's the mentality in that area, especially in my school, which was full of a lot of people on that sort of path. And so um, that's what I thought I was going to do. And my senior year was, uh, it started in the fall of 2016. So obviously in the fall of 2016, there was the presidential election. Um, and myself and many DC hopefuls, we thought that, you know, Hillary Clinton was going to get elected. And with that would come, you know, only, only a slight regime change from the Obama administration. And I wasn't super keen on, um, Hillary Clinton, but I was in that DC mentality of like, you get a job, you climb the ranks, you do a few years. And then once you kind of do that, have it on your resume, you can move forward, do whatever you want. And so that was my mentality. Of course, she did not win. And so at that point, myself and probably thousands of other people were like, okay, what do we do now? And it was the first time in my life where I was faced with a real option in my mind of going somewhere that was not DC. And so I kind of I literally looked at a map of the United States and I was like, where would I even go? Like, what else is there? Um, I didn't want to stay in the East Coast. I was I looked a little bit into going further south, maybe deeper into like North Carolina, maybe going to New York. But I was like, if I go to New York. All my friends are going to go there. It's just going to be the same situation. I'm not going to grow as much. That was my mentality. And um when I looked further south, I was like, I like the concept, but I don't drive. So I was like, I don't know how I'm going to do that because the public infrastructure is not where it needs to be for me to have like a, an useful life. So as I kept looking, I started landing on the West Coast and specifically the Pacific Northwest because I had visited to do some organizing uh, the summer before. So in summer 2016, and had come up to Seattle to visit a good friend of mine that I grew up with who was at Cornish, the um, art school. And, um, you know, I didn't love Seattle when I visited. I thought it was too clean, which is really funny to say that now. I was like, what kind of city is so clean? Like cities aren't clean, you know, it's East Coast. But um, but I love the nature. I thought it was beautiful. I came during like kind of it was early summer time, sort of like, yeah, like late, late May, early June. So, you know, it was seduced a little bit by that. And I did have my very good friend was out here. I had another friend out here. And I was like, you know, I think it's different enough that I will be challenged, but not so different that I would just completely fail. And so I decided to try to pursue some opportunities out here. And the thought was to make it short and sweet, come out here for like a year or two, then come back east for school. 
that was sort of the pivot. And so I did get a fellowship that brought me out here through the United Church of Christ, which is a progressive Christian denomination. Um, I was doing some work with housing justice, um, living in Capitol Hill and like housing that they had provided. And yeah, and that really sort of opened the door. And when I came to Seattle, I had, I think, kind of a unusual experience in the sense that I found community very quickly and not just community, but specifically like black community and people of color who were like organizing. And I came in like with a mentality of like this, these are my people back home. So this is who I need to find here and just try to show up to stuff and, and be present and kind of get a lay of the land. And so that came to me very quickly. Um, I got connected to an environmental justice organization out here for folks of color and was deeply involved in that for a long time. Uh, in 2019, I you know, had enjoyed my time at my at the time full time job, but I worked predominantly with white folks. And while, you know, there's a lot of work to be done there, I was like, if I'm going to be working 40 plus hours a week, I want to be with my folks more often. I want to feel like I'm, you know, serving our communities more directly. And so at that point, I was you know, on the market for a job. And basically it was through a series of relationships and sort of serendipitous moments that I ended up uh, with the job at Surge. Basically, I had applied uh, for a job, uh, an organizer job at the organization that I initially found when I came to Seattle that I'd been organizing in and didn't get that job because I'm not from here, which I was like, that totally makes sense. You need somebody who's from this area to be doing this job. But little did I know, um, the point of the organizing, the organizing director who was on the hiring panel had just sort of kept in mind that I was looking for a job. And so he was dating the person who's now my co-director at Surge, who at the time was the only staff member at Surge and was just sort of the ED by herself and kind of holding everything. And she was on the market looking for someone um, to join the team. And so he told her about me. And long story short, I was walking to my last couple of days at my old job and she pulled up on me in a car at like 9 a.m., and it was kind of crazy because nobody else was around. So I was like, oh, man, this could be it. Like, that was my thought process. Um, she rolled the window down real slow. I was like, oh, man, like, this is not a good situation. But it turned out it was just her. So uh, we had a conversation and uh, a very brief one. And she invited me to have a deeper conversation about the opportunity to work there and to sort of give me the overview. And she said I could pick the place. And at the time, I was not making a lot of money. So I was like, OK, I, you know, someone who's going to pay for lunch, I will go with you anywhere. And so, you know, we went out to lunch later that week and I really was feeling the vision. And from there, you know, I went through an interview process and all that and started at Surge in August of 2019. So since then, that's really where I've been at. That's been my full time job. Um, and then I do some other work on the side with faith communities um, around equitable development and land stewardship, uh, which is also very close to my heart based on that story from, you know, 2017 when I met my family that very much influenced that involvement as well. But um, yeah, that's how I kind of came to Surge and it brings us to the present day. So here we are. Great adventure. I love that though. I love this idea because I came to Seattle for school and then I've also kind of been around. It's like, okay, I'm here now. <laughs> And this idea of like, I'm going to get out though. I don't want to be here forever. I'm not, this won't be the forever place, but yeah, you get rolled in because right now it's about, it's May 20th. So it's towards the end of May, beginning of June, where it is so beautiful and lovely. So it's, it is very tempting. Um, can you talk a little bit about what Surge is before I hop into my, my next question? Sure. So Surge Reproductive Justice, and that's Surge spelled S-U-R-G-E, Reproductive Justice. 
We're a community-directed policymaking organization centering Black women, women of color, and queer and trans people of color for a movement that rises from the bottom up. Uh, we're based in South Seattle. We're actually moving right now to our new organization home, which will be in North Beacon Hill. So we're very excited about that, right by El Centro de la Raza for folks who are familiar. And yeah, and that's really what we do. Um, we do that through a variety of ways, which I'm sure we're about to dive into with these questions. But um, that overarching purpose is what we're here for. Beautiful. Thank you. So with that in mind, as we talk about um, centering Black women, women of color, queer and trans people of color, can you talk a little bit about how centering these communities inform your approach to reproductive justice and maybe how it shapes initiatives and campaigns that you all undertake? Absolutely. So first and foremost, reproductive justice as a movement and as a framework comes directly from all of those aforementioned communities. So we would be remiss as an organization if our constituency as staff and as board and, you know, the folks who kind of are holding it down did not reflect those communities. And if we weren't centering those communities in our work. So that's the first thing is just honoring the legacy from which we came. Uh, the second piece I would say for the initiatives and campaigns is um, I mentioned that we are community directed and we use that term specifically because it means that we really see ourselves as, as staff people, as facilitators that are holding space and creating containers, maybe providing technical expertise, frameworks and language. But ultimately, that the priorities that we're moving toward, the issue areas that we're focusing on, those things are determined by our community. It's determined by those Black women, those women of color, those queer and trans people of color. And we really are just accompanying them in a journey towards navigating the very treacherous political and policy landscape. Um, so that's really what we do. So everything that we do is dictated by our community. Uh, it's nothing is really being held in a vacuum. And if anything, you know, we're always trying to, to listen to our community. So in addition to the sort of policymaking aspect that guides our work and sort of the final product, if you will, of our work, um, all of that comes from uh, uh, research that centers the community and is also conducted by community members and they're compensated for it. Um, and or, you know, organizing. So just good old fashioned, you know, we're meeting with folks. We're creating collective strategies together. We're doing political education, that type of thing. So it all comes from our base, and our base is our community members. Nice. Thank you for sharing that. You um, you touched on this for a little bit, but um, I want to know like how like how your research process goes because you said all the issues come from the community. I'm wondering like how do you all go about finding out those issues and how um, do you open it up to your community for them to bring those issues to you all? Yeah, absolutely. So our sort of formal research process, and I will say it's very much iterative. So we've run a couple of these at this point and we're a relatively young organization. So, you know, we don't have decades of experience as far as, you know, all of us specifically under this banner. Um, but that said, you know, with each iteration, we're getting sharper and sharper on how this process works. So with our research process, one thing that we really believe in is uh, the trusted community messenger model. So as opposed to us as the staff people being the ones who are going out and interviewing community members to basically hear their stories and then later code those stories toward establishing a larger trends and themes amongst the different things that they've named, we will, um, we're in community with folks, depending on what it is that we're doing research on, 
who we basically um, have a contract with, like a short-term contract with. They're in a cohort, basically, of leaders. And then those folks will be trained up on how to basically conduct an interview and then later how to code those interviews. And then they will conduct the interviews and code the interviews. And what we will do um, outside of doing some of that training piece, which sometimes we do that, sometimes we will contract out. Um, but what we will do is sort of create um, the ways that people can choose to participate in this process. So that's, you know, creating compelling um, advertisements. So different types of like promo images and uh, sort of virtual political education, if you will, kind of the Instagram model. Um, and also just getting the word out the good old fashioned way, because Seattle is a small town. So, you know, everybody on staff has our own pockets of influence and we try to get that word out the way that we can through our larger networks. So our newsletter, for example, is another way. Um, yeah. And through our partner organizations also in some cases as well. And so basically we'll get that out, have sort of a, um, almost like an application period, although applications are probably not the best word. It's more just a chance for folks to opt in to, to sharing their stories and getting scheduled with one of those trusted community messengers. And then those community members will do so. They'll have that interview, that conversation, um, and then from there, you know, it'll be recorded and they'll be given sort of a, a walkthrough of what that process will look like. So what does it look like for us to be handling their stories? What is the outcome of that? And then ultimately the goal um, that we've, well, sort of the physical goal, if you will, is to create a community space at the first, the end of the first phase of the process where we bring those folks who participated together. We bring those trusted community messengers together, obviously the staff and other members of our community and we'll present on what came out of that research process. So folks get to see, you know, this, these were the trends, these were the themes that came out of your individual stories. And that'll be, you know, dozens of people being able to see that. Um, and then also what we've done more recently, actually in December of 2022, and we hope to do it again this year, is create a zine. So the kind of classic research process usually results in a, a white paper or, you know, some sort of classic research paper. Nothing wrong with that. Most people do not want to read that, right? They don't want to read 20 to 40 or whatever pages, even if it's their own, you know, their own experiences being reflected. That's just a lot. And so, you know, while it's good for us to have that, that can be helpful later in the policymaking process. We know we want folks to be able to, to look at their stories and also the things that came out of it, what they've named as solutions, that sort of thing and have it be accessible. And so we'll basically translate that research paper into a zine. And we work with community artists, um, always folks of color, to basically to illustrate it, to illustrate those stories. And, and even those artists are you know, given the opportunity to go through a political education process. So it's not just a transactional, oh, you're an artist, can you design this? It's like, hey, you know, you're an artist who's social justice minded. Clearly you care about this issue. You can also tap into some of the things we're doing here, but also we, we obviously we respect your gift and we want you to work on this as well with other folks. So everything is sort of an opportunity for community building. Everything's an opportunity for education and, and deepening our understandings of reproductive justice and anti-racism. Um, and I, I think that answers your question, Ty. No, it it definitely does. Thank you. I have a, I have some follow up before because I really well because um I really like what you said about this concept of like the white papers because like I don't think that people understand what they are. I um when I'm not doing theater stuff, I do behavior analyst stuff, so I work a little bit on the research side of things, and they make us read those, and those are dry. And like I talk with parents about stuff because like you're saying this all this research, like here you go, but it is not accessible. No one is trying to read that. 
at all or like all these technical terms or these clinical terms. So I think you're right. It's really helpful in research. But breaking that down so people understand and can make it accessible is just a whole nother like level of accessibility that people of color need in these communities. As we talk about like research communities where people of color have historically been left out or been taken advantage of in unethical ways. So I think this project is just such a beautiful way to incorporate that and make sure people know what's going on and get the message. Can you tell us a little bit more? When can we expect this zine? Like, is it in drafting phase or is it all still processing? Yeah, so our first scene is actually already out. Um, So basically the idea is that for each of our campaigns, as they go through this research process, that this is a physical outcome of that process. Uh, We're also in the works of putting the zine online so folks can, you know, access it online because it is expensive to print them. (laughs) They're very beautiful. I wish I had one like immediately. It's in my house, but it's not right next to me so I could show it to you all on screen. But yeah, so we're also trying to make it available more readily online. But the next zine, so for the Black Prenatal Health Campaign specifically, that one will be the one that will have a zine come out in the the research process, the whole thing. Um, The coding is coming to an end right now. So there's a team of folks working on that same kind of trusted community messenger model, and that's actually ending that phase. So we're hoping by the end of the calendar year, that's the goal, Um, but we'll see. Nice. I look forward to it. I'm a um I'm an artist and a lot of my art friends have zines. I literally have some in front of me right now. And these are from this year. I feel like zines are really in right now. So just from like an art standpoint and a and a art community standpoint, I think the zines will really hit hard in that community and uh really like be an effective way to get the message out. Um so like Ty, for, oh, go ahead. Said, is it- I is an artist, so that's definitely to consider. Yeah, like, no, most definitely. <laughs> most definitely. I'll I'll send send a resume over. <laughs> uh, um, but for each of your so for each of your campaigns, they all go through that research process and they're all gonna have like their own separate zine. So like Doulas for All will have a zine and Black Perinatal Health Campaign will have a zine and Decrim uh Washington Coalition will have a zine, correct? Sort of. So Duels for All is its own, it's kind of its own little universe because basically it was, it had a different genesis point than any of the rest of the other things that you named. So uh, Duels for All has been our longest running effort. It actually started off as um, is being basically, it was not BIPOC-led initially. And so there was a whole sort of Reckoning may be a little bit too strong, but there was a sort of strong pivot where there was a recognition that folks of color needed to be leading that work. And then there was an ask, an invitation for Surge to be the facilitators of that specific coalition space. So that's a very different starting point than the rest of them, which they sort of started either like with with us and our community group or in-house and then came out. Um, yeah, so that one will not have a zine, at least we have not discussed it as of now, uh, but that one is also the furthest along. So there's actually already policy that's come out at this point um, of that one. So, yeah, that's probably the one outlier, but all the rest of them at some point that should be their trajectory. 
If you're enjoying this podcast and would like to support it and other Mirror Stage programming, you can make a tax-deductible donation via our website, mirrorstage.org, or text Play It Smart to 206-888-6477. That's 206-888-MIRR. So for Do This For All, getting us back on track here, um, we saw that you guys successfully adv- advocated for the establishment of birth doulas as a recognized profession in Washington State, um, which allowed for Medicaid reimbursements for that. Could you share a little bit about more about uh, that impact of that achievement and how it improves access to doula care? Um, especially for our marginalized communities? Yeah, I can speak to it to the best of my ability. And I I just want to give a shout out, obviously, to the Doulas for All Coalition and also to our policy director, Sunite Brown, and to my co-director, Jackie Vaughn, who was holding it down before in that coalition space before Sunite came on. So, you know, there's been many hands that have touched this. Um, A former staff member, Jazzy Bryant, also heavily involved in this effort. So there's there's some much there. But um, yeah, so one, just establishing birth doulas um, as a recognized profession in the state was the sort of step one to the larger process. So basically, if birth doulas were not recognized as a profession, then the next stage, which is the Medicaid reimbursements piece, just couldn't happen. So that had to be the first step in the process. Um, Now, in the the last 18-ish months, We've been in a very intensive rules-making process um, with the healthcare authority and with the Department of Health for the state. And that's basically to, I mean, rules-making is it's a whole, its own thing that I feel like is very uh, non-transparent to most people who think about the legislative process. But basically, it's really getting into the the fine-tuned details of what it's going to look like for this reimbursement rate, sort of like what language we're using to determine different things within this larger policy framework. So the coalition has been like knee-deep in that for quite some time, and they're sort of just coming out of that season and really this month um, in preparation for the next step, um, which is actually moving on to the healthcare authority specifically to, to do this work. So um, yeah, basically, I mean, the impact of this, so sort of twofold, um, we've found through research, actually some research conducted by the state of Washington, that birth doulas, you know, drastically improve birthing outcomes, specifically for folks of color. And in Washington state, um, indigenous folks are the ones who are the most at risk for a negative uh, outcome when it comes to the birthing experience shortly followed by Black folks. So, you know, it still goes right to our mission of, of who we're trying to center in our work. And really with that, um, you know, with that information in mind, the idea is that, okay, so folks who are giving birth want to have somebody who's supporting them, who looks like them, right, who comes from their community, who can provide that culturally competent, highly specific care, who they don't have to explain things to, right, and who they can even have those conversations about different types of ways to give birth, right? That is not just a standard, oh, we're going to the hospital necessarily. Or maybe it is, yeah, we're going to the hospital, but it's not just going to be the same copy and paste. And so people want to work with folks who look like them. However, it's not inexpensive to hire someone to be a birth doula, right? And so we also know the reality from um, 
from an income perspective for our communities is that, you know, we are not making the same as the wealthy white families that often can afford to hire a birth doula, a midwife, and the whole sort of birthing team. And so what this Medicaid reimbursements allows for is that folks, you know, who qualify under Medicaid could submit a claim, basically get a birth doula that is someone from their community and be able to pay that person. So then the birth doulas who are, you know, folks from our community, they get to work with who they want to work with, which is also people who look like them. And then folks who want a birth doula will be able to afford to have one. Right. And so at the end of the day, ideally, long term birthing outcomes will be positively affected because there'll be more access to birth doulas and also birth doulas will be able to really continue to make a living in a more sustainable way, ideally, um, with this as a policy. So, yeah, that's really what it is. It's, you know, ideally everybody wins um, and we're trying to shape it to be so. That's incredible. Thank you for sharing that. Um, It's crazy that that you know, that it took so much work for that to be, um, for that to be recognized as a profession. Uh, Cause I feel like I've heard about birth doulas and I've heard about holistic approaches to, um, to birthing and alternate alternatives to just going to the hospital and having them deliver your baby. Um, so I feel like it was completely necessary. I just hate that like with this and a lot of other issues that it takes so much work and so much time for, um, for it to be recognized, but it's incredible the impact um, that it has had on our marginalized communities. Uh, we even had a doula on our podcast not too long ago who has, um, she's, they've opened like several uh, birthing centers around Washington and even outside of Washington. And they're just doing a lot of work um, for, for moms and um, people going through that part of life uh, to have holistic solutions. Um, and like you said, be able to work with with Black doulas and doulas of color um, who can understand their life experiences and they don't have to, you know, explain or uh, assume that they don't know about what they live um, and how they live. So thank you for sharing that and uh, telling us about the work you all do in the doula space. Yeah, and I think Ty's referring... Maybe we've talked to a lot of reproductive rights people lately. I like I'm realizing as I'm answering this, um, we talked with Tara from Rainier Valley Midwives. So I don't know if you're familiar with them. We're a big fan of, of all the work they do. And she's great and um, really introduced us to all of these concepts and this idea that there are so many choices to be made, but sometimes it becomes overwhelming when you're in a hospital and a doctor is looking at you and is like, okay, what are you going to do? Or this, or this is how it's going to be done. As opposed to knowing like, oh, you, you have say, you have, you can ask questions. You could do this where you want. This can be on your terms. But I think that comfort level of having people that look like you, the presentation is important. Um, okay. I have questions about the black, is it perinatal health campaign? Am I pronouncing that right? That please was tell great. me. That was oh, great. Thank you. <laughs> please tell me more about, about this campaign. Yeah, so this campaign is, you know, our only campaign at Surge that it's, you know, exclusively focuses on Black folks. And this is once again towards our mission. You know, we know that anti-Blackness is at the heart of so much injustice, all of the injustice really in the world. And so we'd be remiss if we didn't center Black folks um, in at least one of our campaigns. And so this campaign really very simple. It's about 
figuring out sort of what are the priorities for Black folks uh, who are parents, Black folks who are pregnant, um, and Black families in King County and developing a agenda um, towards, you know, towards achieving that, so towards achieving those community-directed solutions. So um, much like we discussed before, this campaign is going through a similar process to our other campaign, which is our Our Words Build Power campaign, which is the one that had the zine come out in December of 2022. So um, right now, there's a team of folks who are finishing up their coding um, based off a number of interviews that were conducted. They're also going through a strategic process internally for sort of what the outreach will look like uh, moving forward in this campaign. And the goal at the end of the year is to once again have another zine to be able to distribute to folks and uh, to have those continue those conversations, but to have some maybe some new conversations about, you know, what does it look like to bring folks on board even more so and to, you know, establish Black birthing justice in King County. Cool. And this might be a really simple question, but I am a little unclear because this is the first time I've seen this word perinatal. Can you talk a little bit about like what it means? In, in the context of all this, the work you guys were doing? Yeah, so um, let me see. So language is very important to us, inclusive language particularly, because while reproductive justice has pushed ahead on many topics, one area specifically in the birth space that has somewhat lagged behind has been around inclusive inclusivity, uh, particularly when it comes to queer and trans people who are giving birth in, you know, sort of outside of the stereotype or the norm. Um, and so oftentimes when people talk about reproductive justice or anything reproductive health care related, they'll think about mothers, right? There's a super hyper emphasis on mothers, which does make sense. You know, a majority of folks who give birth do identify as a mom or some iteration of that. However, you know, for Surge, we are Black, trans, and queer-led. And so this is really important to us to build that inclusion into everything that we do and ensure that when folks see even just the way that we're talking about our campaigns, they know that there's space for them within them. Um, and so we use the word perinatal to basically be a bit more zoomed out and include more people and more bodies, literally, um, than maternal would. So, you know, I think that that kind of gets to it. Thank you. Yes, that is helpful because I was like, oh, this is an interesting word. I know about, I've heard prenatal, I've heard these things, but this concept too about Again, back to inclusivity and how you can have more people be a part of this and a part of the conversation. Mm -hmm. um, so can you talk about how this campaign addresses specific challenges faced by the Black communities and the, the like support that you bring and how you all connect them with the Black workers? Yeah, so really the how is being established right now. Um, as the, the sort of research uh, materializes, I've of this coding process, well, that's when we will see the how. So we're not quite at that point. Um, yeah, but I will say that uh, a goal is, as, as always, to build up the ecosystem, uh, specifically for folks of color in this area, because that's where we focus, um, and across the state, ideally, um, and having, you know, and having us direct our solutions and it coming from our communities. So um, yeah, we'll see how it kind of materializes over time because we're really following the lead of our community. Um, but right now, it's a, a process being led by them. So we'll see. Awesome. Thank you for sharing that, E. Um, so we want to know more about the, the Decrim Washington Coalition as well. Um, we know that it's like a partnership between queer and trans BIPOC-led organizations and surge reproductive justice. Uh, Keith, tell us a little bit more about Decrim Washington Coalition and like tell us the key objectives, 
um, and also how they contribute to promoting uh, the safety and well-being of sex workers. Sure. So decriminalize, uh, the decrim stands for decriminalize, just for clarity. So decriminalize Washington. Um, yeah, so it's pretty basic. Um, the goal, very long term, is to, to decriminalize sex work statewide. Um, in addition to it being a partnership between ourselves at Surge and QD BIPOC-led organizations, several of the organizations are also led by folks, you know, who are involved in sex work or have been involved in sex work. So um, because that is a, a level of expertise that we don't have at Surge. And so we want to make sure that, you know, we don't need to be the ones speaking on behalf of folks. Folks can speak for themselves. So there's that. Um, some key objectives of this coalition at its present is there is a cohort of folks who represent the, the larger coalition um, and they're going through a political education process. So we can basically be all on the same page when it comes to um, anti-racism, when it comes to reproductive justice, uh, when it comes in some ways to the sort of legislative process. You know, what does it look like to navigate that as folks of color, especially black folks? Um, and also just understanding some of the nitty gritty specifically around decriminalization versus legalization, that sort of um, larger conversation when it comes to yeah, changing the game around sex work. So that's some of what's going on. Also, there's a bit of relationship building because not all of these folks you know, are coming and knowing each other. And so just really building that net or as we'll say, sometimes that net that works, that network um, with folks and yeah, as they get to know one another and as they build their analysis, the next step uh, will be to build upon their internal strategy around outreach and then figure out what a sort of a statewide campaign on this can look like long term. Nice. Thank you for sharing that. I feel like um, I have one more question about this uh, because I understand, you know, why we would want this. But could you speak on the the why for Decrim Washington uh, just for our listeners to understand? Absolutely. So one of the hearts of reproductive justice is bodily autonomy. In fact, personally, I would say that that sort of is the crux of reproductive justice, the idea that you can choose as an individual what to do with your body and that no one or no entity in the case of the government or some other entity can enforce something upon you that will negatively impact your health and well-being. Right. So basically just having the, the choice and the access to do what you want to do with your body and determine your outcomes. Right. Um, and so with bodily autonomy, uh, sex work really sort of is, is key to that. Right. People often say sex work is the world's oldest profession. And it's also been you know stigmatized and um disparaged just as long as it's been in existence since the very beginning. And so we know that this is a very ambitious campaign and that if it can be successful and we can create a process towards that success um, that can be replicated elsewhere, that that could have a huge ripple effect, not just in sort of the reproductive justice space, but across the political landscape. If we're thinking about all the other issues that tie into bodily autonomy. So we think about the attacks on trans rights, for example, right now, we think about all of the anti-Black legislation in the, since the beginning of the of United States uh, that's ever happened. So much of that has been about taking away our autonomy, right? Taking away our individual rights and also even our abilities to organize within our community. And we also know that if we address issues for the folks who are the most marginalized in society, then those ripple effects and the positive impacts are positives for everybody. Everybody wins. So um, that's really some of the, the thought around it and the specific reason why decriminalization versus legalization, because that often is a 
a question that we get, and it's a good question, is because when we think about the framework of legalization and sort of the legal framework, you know, who benefits from a legal, from it being legalized? The government, right? Some of the folks who have been the most um, against, actively against sex workers, we think about legislation such as SESTA-FOSTA, for example, that has made it so unsafe, so much more unsafe to be a sex worker in this world. Um, and that was, you know, really pushed forward by our current vice president back when she was in her previous role at the state of California. So there is there is a lot there. And really, our question that we consistently ask is who benefits and trying as much as possible to center the people who are the most impacted as the folks who will benefit the most from whatever comes out of our campaigns, period. But especially in this particular situation. Nice. Thank you for sharing that. Edie. Sorry, right as you said, Sestafasa, I was like, I need to Google this really quickly. <laughs> so I have it pulled up. So I will be sure to add that to our like show notes for people so that they can like read, read a little bit more about it. Um, okay, sorry, one moment. Let me go back. Okay. So I'm I'm now want to talk a little bit about the Just Speak project that you have going on, which is the reproductive justice storytelling and political education series. Um, could you tell us a little bit more about the importance of storytelling and advancing reproductive justice? and share some of the key topics covered in the series? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, Just Speak, um, that was actually what one of the things that I held down when I first came to the organization in my previous role. So it's very close to my heart. Um, I mean, the importance of storytelling, reproductive justice, I hope throughout you know this entire conversation we've had, it's been very clear that we're not moving in a vacuum, right? Everything that we're doing, all this policy that we're talking about, all these organizing efforts, they're very much informed literally by people's stories. So if folks are not telling their stories, if they're not sharing their truth, especially collectively, then we cannot see sort of the trends that are coming out of our community, nor can we see the visions that could also come out of our community. So in either direction, it's very important to hear people's voices shaping you know, our realities um, and when it comes to advancing reproductive justice, specifically within that, it is helpful because sometimes I think people can get a little bit heady. They can get a little bit academic about reproductive justice. Some of the most important you know, figures that we have within the movement are folks who came out of the academy. And that's no knock against them. It's just to say that that is a certain entry point And not every person is going to get that right off the bat. Not every person is going to read that research paper or read that long book that's full of you know, feminist analysis. So. Uh, just sharing simple stories under the banner of a specific topic, you can really help people put together different concepts much more easily than if you would have them sit down for a training or if you would have them read a book or, you know, whatever the case may be. And so it's just another way of bringing folks in, um, having folks feel their power, potentially get, you know, interested and tapped into the larger organizing and advocacy efforts that we're a part of um, and, you know, and build community with other people around this, this subject. So some of the key topics, we have a few topics that tend to run kind of cyclically, you know, on a yearly basis. And then we have sort of a wild card topic. So just sort of listen to the streets, like what are people talking about? What's in the zeitgeist? And then creating a Just Speak um, event around that. But one of our more popular topics is our sex positive storytelling event. So um, for folks in Seattle who might be listening to this, uh, Miss Brickhouse is our host. And, you know, who doesn't love Miss Brickhouse? She just brings the energy and the fun and the analysis to the stage every single time um, and just really like holds that together for sure. But we also have our storytellers. And I will say storyteller for us is 
is pretty loose. So we're like, you know, you can tell your story the old fashioned way, the verbal way. You can give us an interpretive dance. We've had that. You can give us some performance art. We've absolutely had that. Um, it can be like live painting type of thing, poetry, song. You know, there are many different ways to get across what's on your heart and what your experience has been. And so um, we've had folks do a little bit of everything. And every time we have this event, I'm always astounded by people's creativity because some of the things they come up with, I'm like, that wouldn't even have crossed my mind. So I love that. Um, but yeah, so that one is very popular. People love to talk about sex. You know, it's it's not hard to sell it. Um, but also, you know, we bring in that analysis piece and some of the thought around that is like folks are having such a good time. They're cutting up, you know, they're laughing, they're crying, they're all the full spectrum of human emotions. And the whole time they're learning and they're not maybe realizing that they're learning. But later on, they're going to sit with it. They're going to come back and be like, mm, you know, when so and so shared that story, it made me think about what happened to me. And some of the ways that they made sense of their experience resonate with my experience. And now that's right. That's opening up a, a good can of worms, a very generative can of worms and helping them think more deeply about reproductive justice and the impact on their lives. So that's uh, one of our events. Another one is our parenting in the movement event. So this one came out of one, wanting to reach those folks with families um, with children, whether those children are biological or those families are chosen families, whatever it may be. Um, we really do try to center sort of alternative family structures because we know that that's yet another area that does not get a lot of space um, in these sort of parenting conversations. And we also wanna hear from folks who not only um, are in social justice movements themselves and have children, but also folks who are trying to parent in social justice ways. So we think about movements such as, for example, the uh, gentle parenting movement, right? Especially in our communities, communities of color, especially the black community. I'm just going to speak to our community for a second. You know, you know, I grew up here and spared the rod, spoiled the child. Like that was very much like corporal punishment was a part of life. And I look back on, I'm like, that was some of the worst times of my life. And I would have been great for my parents. I've heard about something like gentle parenting. And so it's really, I think it's uh, inspirational for folks to hear from black parents who um, and other parents of color as well, because that is also across communities, the sort of corporal punishment thing um, to hear from other parents who are trying something different. Right. And they're doing it because it aligns with their values, because they are learning from those generational mistakes and that generational trauma. And they're trying to rectify the situation in the present time with their children. So um, it's a time for parents to connect and for just families of, of all kinds to connect. Um, it's a time for folks to learn, obviously, different techniques or different ways of thinking about things. Um, it's also really one of our Just Speaks where we really super emphasize um, the inclusivity piece because we have all types of parents in there. So folks are definitely entering at different levels of analysis, but we have to establish that level of respect for all ways that family is created and, and cultivated. And I think that a lot of people come out of it. In fact, we actually directly heard that some folks have come out of it really having their minds shifted in a direction where it's, it's broadening their minds right around some of these things. So they came in for one thing, they got something else. And that's that's great. That's kind of the goal. So that's another one of them. Um, and then besides that, we've had a few other sort of, yeah, kind of what comes up. So we've had a couple abortion storytelling events. We just had one in the fall on abortion storytelling for obvious reasons with the Supreme Court decision in 2022. Uh, we had one on the nonprofit industrial complex. That was back in the fall of 2021. Uh, people really got a lot from that. Someone later told me uh, who I ran into in the street. I did not know this person. She said, I came to your event and I quit my job two weeks later. 
And I was like, oh, do you have another job? <laughs> and she was like, yeah, 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 it all worked out. I was like, thank God, because I'm happy you did that. But also, like, we got to, you know, stay in our bag a little bit <laughs> under capitalism. Anyway, so, um, so yeah, those are some other examples of, of different types of events that we've had. And there's others I'm not speaking to, but you can kind of get the gist, I think. Yeah, well, now I'm curious, too, on, like, is it open to the community? How can people be a part of this? Is it on, is, are there any documents or like recordings on online or like, yeah, how does it work? If a listener was like, mainly me, I want to go. How do I go? <laughs> For sure. Yay. We're excited to see you, Kiki. Um, so we do it on roughly a trimester basis. So not quite quarterly, but it's about three times a year. Um, yeah. And so Typically, what we'll do is we'll put out a promo flyer, you know, on all of our networks, so our social media, our newsletter. We'll send it out to different organizations that have their own newsletters, right? Get the word out. Sometimes we've also done physical flyering if we feel like the weather will cooperate, because obviously if it's going to rain, then there's kind of no point in doing that. But uh, we get the word out. And yeah, we'll have a call for storytellers. So that's the first thing that kind of goes out besides the general invitation. So, you know, there's a window of time where we really push hard to have folks, you know, sign up to be a storyteller. This space is a BIPOC only space. So people of color only. We center queer and trans people of color. So that means that if you are not a queer trans person, you can be in the space, but know that the space is not necessarily going to be centered on you. So that's the main things folks can't get upset when they're like, well, everybody was queer. It's like, yeah, that's kind of the point. Uh, so there's that piece of that. Um, yeah. And then other than that, when it comes to the storytelling, the form is pretty straightforward. It just sort of goes over, you know, compensation, uh, a little bit of background on reproductive justice in case people aren't immediately clear, like what that is. But a background on us as Surge lets you know who will be in contact with you for a follow up conversation and then a little like sort of short spaces for people to talk about what their actual story is about, what they like to receive feedback, that type of thing. So yeah, um, that's pretty much it. And then the, you know, re registration process, if you want to attend is, is basic. It's just going on our Eventbrite link as that goes out. So it's always free. Uh, we always have food. We always have drinks um, as long as it's in person. And we just recently, we started off in person, the pandemic happened, and then we are very virtual and now we're doing a hybrid thing. So, um, but the in-person is very fun, I will say, and we do a pretty good job. It's still interacting with folks on the hybrid. So I think folks still get a lot of, out of it. We have folks who tune in from around the country at this point. A lot of people started to tap in during the pandemic times on the virtual tip. And now they are like, we're still in here. We still want to be part of it. So we were like, okay, great. You know, you still have that option. Um, yeah, I think that's pretty much everything. Awesome. Thank you. Well, I, I do love that. We've talked a lot too, as a company about the pandemic and kind of like how shifting everything online was hard and like taxing and it took a lot of time and energy and like, what are we doing? But now that people are going back into spaces, how can we keep the benefits that we learned, like the pros of all these online resources? And it is that bigger network. It's like, how can we continue to engage people who can't, always be in person, even if they are living in the city. Like again, like people got kids, people have jobs, people have to make sure they can keep their household running. So all of those things. So this is great. Thank you. And I'll link again in the show notes, we'll have all of this on like how they can get involved, what other things they, they might um, find on your website as well. Nice. So E, um, you, thank you for telling us about all of uh, the work that 
uh, Surge Reproductive Justice is doing. And you guys are doing so much. So looking ahead, I just want to know, like, what are your upcoming priorities and initiatives? That anything like new on the horizon that you're excited about or that you want our listeners to know about? Yeah. So one of the campaigns I didn't speak about too much, I think I referenced it at one point, is our um, our words build power campaign. So that was actually our first sort of campaign under the community directed policymaking model uh, that we started from internally from start to finish. Um, and that was a 2020 effort that, you know, continues. And we had our zine party in December of last year. So still ongoing. Um, that work will be picking up again. So I do just want to let folks know to be on the lookout for more opportunities to plug in there. And that one really touches on specifically um, BIPOC, queer and trans wellness within King County. So um, it's about sort of increasing access to healthcare, um, especially what we found in our research was around sort of alternative healthcare models and having folks be able to afford different ways to take care of themselves and having to go to the doctor sort of the traditional way. So more coming coming there. Um, I mentioned a few times today that, you know, our goal for our Black Perinatal Health Campaign is a zine at the end of the year. Um, and I did mention also that we had a zine party. So, you know, we do like to party, um, as, you know, Beyonce once said. And yeah, so we'll have a zine launch and distribution party um, when that's ready. And that'll be an opportunity for all the folks who directly participated in that process and also the larger community to be able to come through, grab a zine, you know, break bread and get a little bit of analysis and a lot of fun. So that'll be happening for sure. Keep your eyes open for that. Um, and outside of that, I think, I mean, this is a little bit further down the road, but Doulas uh, for All, you know, we continue marching along. So a, a critical component of that campaign will really be the community education once it comes to its completion. So once, you know, everything on the back end is set up and folks can actually tap into this program, um, it really will, will be getting the word out, making sure that people know that this is an option for them and also just know even what a birth doula is. Um, I'll never forget I was tabling at an event when I first started at the organization back in 2019. So this was in person and um, an aide of one of our more prominent um, national legislators. I won't put them on blast in case it's specific, um, but one of their aides, very nice person, but they were trying to support, you know, show face, which I appreciated at this event, but they did not know what a doula was. Um, and when I tried to use an alternative word, I was like the birth worker is still just whoop, like right over the head, glazed eyes. Um, and But to their credit, they did ask, you know, what is it? And I was able to provide a definition uh, that I think, you know, got their mind flowing a little bit. But it really did wake me up a little bit because to me, I think Ty had said this earlier, I've heard about birth workers. I've heard about doulas. I have folks who are friends of mine, even before I was even at Surge, who were in this line of work. So it was not a new concept that folks like this exist. I've just learned more about it since being at this organization. But um, a lot of folks truly don't have a clue. And I think it's important just to even start at that sort of 101 level of like, this is what this is. This is why it's important. And this is why everyone should have one if they want one. So that will be an ongoing effort once we have, um, once our process with Doulas for All has come to its completion and we're getting that word out. So those are a few different ways. Uh, the last piece is we will have a Just Speak in the latter part of this year. It'll either be September, potentially October. Um, and that one, we're not sure what the topic will be yet. That's kind of our wild card one, but we're experimenting with our organizing spaces, holding more ownership 
of that particular event. And so our G- our Decrim Walk Coalition will actually be shaping the topic and sort of the the vibe of that just speak. So whatever they come up with, I'm sure will be a really good time. And I encourage folks to come out once we put the word out. Awesome. Thank you. And then uh, my last question for you is how can individuals support surge reproductive justice and contribute to the mission? Are there any specific ways that you're looking for listeners to get involved or support the organization's initiative? Absolutely. So one thing that's actually ongoing, it's happening at this very moment, um, is our leadership development series. So once again, on a trimester basis, so three times a year, we have a leadership development political education series. It's entirely virtual. So anyone around the country, around the world could, you know, tap in if they want to. Um, yeah. And so basically this, uh, this training modules, they go through anti-racism, generally speaking, reproductive justice 101, and then black and advocacy. So this is our specific um, sort of take on what it looks like to navigate the legislative world on the state level as a black led organization, as black people. And I think it's useful for everyone though, because it really blows up the spot on a lot of the, the pitfalls that often come with the legislative process that folks take as a given, but they don't have to be a given, right? We can work around it. We can finesse it. So long story short, um, that's one part of it. We also have our resource mobilizing program, our cohort program. Um, and that is for folks who want to not only learn about the sort of first three sessions I just talked about, so the anti-racism and the reproductive justice and the advocacy piece, but also would like to raise money and and or provide other access and resources for the organization. So in that one, we teach about what resource mobilizing as a framework even is, what some examples of that look like from a strategic level, uh, specifically for this organization, and then help people figure out sort of what is their place or what is their role in making that happen. So if there's somebody who loves to raise money the old fashioned way, then that's great. You know, we know how to work with that. If there's somebody who has access to a lot of space, but maybe not a lot of money, that's great. We know how to work with that. You know, if it's somebody who's maybe going to be more of a street team type of person, they're going to be able to get the word out type of thing. If they're creative, you know, so there's a lot of different ways to support our efforts and to bring more folks into the fold. And that's ultimately the goal. Um, But yeah, so that's a whole other thing that folks can tap into as well. And we have a page on our website that just says support us. So it's right there, very clear. Folks can click that and get tapped in that way. Um, I would also say, you know, sign up for our newsletter. Um, there's a link to sign up to the newsletter on our website. You can donate directly to us on, also on our website um, and also on any of our social media links. And, and yes, follow us on social media. Um, we're most active on Facebook and Instagram. Not really sure what to do about Twitter because every other day there's a fire over there. So we're just kind of hanging tight for the moment. But um, anyway, you can follow us everywhere at, at S-U-R-G-E number four. RJ, so search for RJ on all of our platforms. Yeah, that's how folks can tap in. Nice. Well, thank you, E, for your time today. Uh, thank you for sharing everything you shared about surge reproductive justice. Um, it's such an informative way. I hope all of us and our listeners uh, get involved however they can. Uh, is there anything else you want uh, our folks to know before we let you go today? I just want to give a shout out, you know, to the lineage that we come from. Uh, So just want to, you know, name that uh, sister song, uh, which is an organization in Georgia. They actually were the first reproductive justice organization in, uh, to our knowledge, in the world. 
And they were the ones who really established uh, the definition of reproductive justice and set, you know, put the ball in motion really for this movement. So um, I think it's really important, especially for us as folks in, you know, the, this corner of the country, the Pacific Northwest, that doesn't have a super strong reproductive justice presence. You know, we are, to our knowledge, the only explicitly reproductive justice organization in the state of Washington at this time. Um, though many people do reproductive justice, it's just not explicitly in their mission or their name. Um, yeah, to lift up, you know, the American South. Uh, they, without them, without that long lineage, we would not be here today. And I think we have a responsibility, especially as a place that is able to do, in a lot of cases, more progressive things on a policy level to uplift our siblings in other parts of the country who are fighting a really good fight. So, that's the one thing I would say, but otherwise, thank y'all for your time. Really appreciated this. If you're enjoying this podcast and would like to support it and other Mirror Stage programming, you can make a tax-deductible donation via our website, mirrorstage.org, or text Play It Smart to 206-888-6477. That's 206-888-MIRR. So fun. Yeah, that was that was great. So fun. Everything about that person was so young. Right? Like, like they, <laughs> he spoke so well. Like I could I could literally <laughs> have listened like to him explain every single thing that um yeah. that Serge does. When he when he started and was like, I was like, oh okay, cool. You graduated in 2016. Okay. Cool. Like, and then they're like, You're so I young. <laughs> Someone just like came up on the side of the road, like offered me a job in 2019. I like that was the company. I'm just like, wow, Surge is so young. Yeah. They are gonna go so many places. I am just stoked and excited to like connect Surge with Mirror Stage, but as well as like all these other organizations we've worked with that have been working for years and years and years mm -hmm. to develop their reproductive rights, reproductive justice conversations, or even like we're talking about with Tara and um, Rainier Valley. Valley Midwife. Yeah, because if they're not mm -hmm. connected, then that would, I mean, just the work that the two of them could do together would be like astounding. Yes. But yeah, it was it was all uh, really great. I loved um, when E was talking about like visiting his family in North Carolina and thinking like, oh, I didn't even realize that we could own stuff until I saw I had family that owns um, like mad property. And I think in the South, you know, especially having family that grew up in the South, I don't know if it was just incredibly easy to get houses and land like 30 or 40 years ago or something. But like all of our, it seems like our grandparents have like bought a house and that house just stays in the family you know and yes. i feel like now we're kind of like losing that opportunity since housing is so expensive and inaccessible um that we don't have that same yes. opportunity to have a generational homestead where you know sunday dinners happen and um all these like family reunions happen there and it's kind of like not that it's not possible, but I just think that it, it, the world is kind of a different place than it was then. Yes. It's not that it's impossible, but it's just becoming less and less possible with all of these restraints on, on finances. Because, like, part of this is, I, I think what you're saying, too, is, like, I don't know if it was necessarily, like, super easy to get a house 30 years ago, especially for, like, communities of color, just because we know about 
all the, all the stuff we've talked about with like redlining mm-hmm. or how they block out different groups from neighborhoods. But I think it goes back to what you're saying about location. Just like when there's a lot of space, it, it can be cheaper to get a house. And then the importance of, but you got to keep that in the family. But that gets trickier as like families grow and people move and stuff like that. But like, how do you continue to have this homestead place mm-hmm. that people can still be a part of and go to and continue this concept of like generational wealth? It's just a crazy concept to be like generational wealth. You had a house forever. Yeah. <laughs> Things like that. Like you, you had land in your family for X amount of years that they were able to either make money off of or just keep so that they didn't have to then spend X amount of millions of dollars now to buy property or buy a house. Mm-hmm. Capitalism. Yeah. Woo-hoo. It's like generational wealth on one side and generational trauma on the other. Yeah, we're just out here trying to survive. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but um, also he uh, mentioned like honoring uh, honoring the legacy from which you came, and he touched on that a bit at the end with uh, mentioning Sister Song. I've never heard of even being you know from Georgia is not part of like my history or anything like that. Um, which you know, reproductive justice is something that I didn't even really wasn't on my radar until I moved to Seattle, you know? So I don't think it's something that a lot of organizations in Georgia are, um, are focusing on. Um, but that being said, it, I do think it's important to, you know, look, recognize the work that has been done and where we came from and um, tie that to like what's left to do and where we're headed. Yes. Agreed. But also this idea too, that, Maybe it wasn't on your radar before, but like there is now, you know, about this place that was so tied to where you're from. And so this just idea too about like, there are all these different networks of people just trying to build towards these big ideas. So like, how can we honor ones that have done it before? How can we keep uplifting them while uplifting ours? And just like that connection across America, because that's kind of the idea as we talk about like politics and policies and stuff around those is like how can we get this and get these communities all moving towards a common goal and in this case it's just reproductive justice like everybody we just want these reproductive justice um in each state so how can we all do that and stay connected and like keep pushing that agenda mm-hmm. exactly yeah and it's hard but it is easier as we talk about this idea about connecting online making these classes accessible online, things like that. I was just looking at that when they were talking about um, their upcoming classes that they have going on. I was looking at those and I was like, oh, I'm going to be out of town, but it is online. So, and there are two opportunities for each class, like the Justice 101 that they were talking about and the, um, oh, I forget the other one offhand, but the other class that they were talking about, like there are two opportunities to do these classes. So even if you can't make this one, there might be a chance to make another one and they're all online. Mm Yeah, and I love that, uh, making it accessible for everybody, because everybody really needs to know this information and know about the work they're doing as well, uh, for sure. Yes. And I love that they yes. also intentionally, like, focus on people of color and queer and trans people of color. I feel like they get included in a lot of things with a lot of the organizations that we talk about. Um, but I think very few organizations are like, okay, we are just looking at this community and pulling, you know, we're 
gathering leaders that are specific to this community and getting what um getting their thoughts on what the issues are you know framing our work around what they believe the issues are um and it it all just feels very intentional uh so they can uh, target where the most work needs done and um and and work in those areas i love that And also they mentioned like uh would decrim decriminalize Washington. Um they mentioned like starting at the most marginalized group, which would be the sex workers, and hoping that, you know, since sex work is like such a taboo, if they're able to get some positive change and positive legislation done in that area, then you know, it should in theory, it should be easier to like move down to like less marginalized groups and like work on some of that same decriminalization and legislation that um to get that work done so a lot of great work they're doing and just uh, their their processes and their intention is um really kind of speaks to um what they're getting done and um, the power that this young organization already wields Yes. And also this, these different, like you're saying, organizations that they're working with or these different campaigns that they have and all of it kind of tying together with one another, but also building that community and the storytelling component they have, I think just ties really well with the work that we do, as well as goes back to this idea about inclusion and how people can share their stories in a space where it is a welcoming space as well as how people can learn from one another in these spaces. Mm -hmm. So I'm looking forward to working with them more and kind of exploring this concept of storytelling with them just in general and seeing what events they're having. Yeah, for sure. So I feel like our Contexpo is like what their just speak is, or rather our Contexpo wants to be what their just speak is. Because I think, you know, we just did it one year and we learned a lot from that. But I think we could definitely like ex expand on that and not necessarily tell more, like do more risky topics. But I think that might be <laughs> like part of expanding it. You know, we have a, a, a sex work um, or we do a Contexpo about sex work. Like E said, you know, people love to talk about, you know, sex, their sex experiences, and it's not a hard sell. Um, maybe for, maybe from the Finney neighborhood. I don't know. It might be a hard sell, but I'm not from here, so I can't speak on that for real. <laughs> uh, think about the children, Ty. That's going to be some people. But what about the children? They came about because of sex. Yeah, I mean, they, <laughs> so. they should. I don't know. We had that one that was like, it was it had a disclaimer like, "This is not an event for kids." I I cussed at that event. I remember. <laughs> That's true. You did. I think it's on our YouTube page. <laughs> yep, I cussed on YouTube, listeners. If you have not heard me cuss before, it's on YouTube. <laughs> I'll add that to our call to action. <laughs> As always, our call to action links we list will be in our show notes. So we always invite you to go and learn more about our listener, um, not our listener, our interviewee, learn about the programs discussed and all that's going on at Surge's website. 
And you can follow Surge on Instagram to stay up to date with what's going on with them. And we'll also provide a link to their link tree where you can gain access to all their online content. And we also invite you to discover another phenomenal organization that was mentioned here, Sister Song. It's a Southern-based national membership organization whose purpose is to build an effective network of individuals and organizations to improve institutional policies and systems that impact the reproductive lives of marginalized communities. And lastly, listeners, you can learn more about the FOSTA-SESTA laws and how they've had an impact on sex workers across the country. Thank you all so much for listening. We're looking forward to chatting more with you next month. But until then, share this episode with your friends and let's keep this conversation about reproductive justice and wellness in communities of color going. Take care, Seattle. And sweet dreams, Seattle. This program is supported in part by a grant from the Washington State Arts Commission and the National Endowment of the Arts. We would like to acknowledge that we are on the traditional land of the first people of Seattle, the Duwamish and Coast Salish people, past and present, and honor with gratitude the land itself and the Duwamish and Coast Salish tribes. If you like what you've heard and would like to support this podcast or other Mirror Stage programming, you can donate at our website, mirrorstage.org, or text Play It Smart to 206 888 6477. Thank you, everyone, for listening. This podcast is available on Breaker, Google Podcasts, Overcast, Pocket Casts, Radio Public, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. So if you are finding us on any of those platforms, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe if possible.